0: Welcome to Life Church. We are an X242 Community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through his word and by his spirit. Here we are. Week three, but the second letter of John. So if you have your Bible with you. It should go without saying, really, to turn to it, but I will say it anyway. we to get quickly into the text itself, and in quite traditional fashion, draw out some points from the text and apply them to daily life. Um, just a quick note, though, before we get into that, about John himself, because I realized, as I reflected over the last two weeks, I've not said too much about John himself, not as a person anyway I, I, I guess I kind of assumed that with the people I had in front of me that it was fairly well known what type of person he was but I want you to understand the mindset of the man as he's writing this particular letter and at the stage of life he's at he really is a, a kind of a, a battle-worn battle-scarred warrior for God who has really had to grit his teeth and sort of persevere in, in an incredible way, really. I mentioned with this image um, of this timeline in the first century that John really stood alone in this latter period of this first century. His mates Peter and the other apostles have either, as far as he knew, that they had either died or he didn't know where they were. I guess he would probably assume that that most of them were dead by the time that he was writing. And the temple, which he knew and he'd spent time around and Jesus had talked about and taught into in terms of its relevance to faith in God. That had gone up in flames. He wouldn't have been ignorant of the fact that that temple now had disappeared. He'd seen his Jewish brothers and sisters slaughtered in their thousands by the Romans. He had known incredible hardship, and there he was in this latter period of time, some nearly 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and after the death of Peter and of Paul he's still writing letters urging the church to make sure that they hold on to what's important. He didn't want them to let go of the essentials of the Christian faith. It would have been very easy at that point in his life an aging man to think oh gosh just let that other generation get on with it. I've seen enough, I've done enough, I've been there, I've been through it all. I need to stick my feet up. But right until the very last, there was no retirement for John. He's writing these letters. He's urging the church. He's watching out for wolves that were coming amongst the sheep of the congregations he was supervising at that time. And in fact, one tradition says that during this period of time, either slightly uh, before or slightly after... There'd been an attempt on his life to boil him alive in a big vat of oil in Ephesus. And a bit like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, where it didn't work for them, it didn't work for John. So when they realized that they couldn't boil him alive, they released him and sent him to to the Isle of Patmos to kind of do some slave labor, which is where he used that opportunity to write the book of Revelation. So he really has been through it all. And so when I reminded myself of his story, I gave myself a good talking to. When I get a bit down in the dumps, I think, Oh, Lord, why haven't you done this yet? And why haven't you done that yet? And, you know, where's this person these days? And where's that person these days? I think if I could sit down with John now, and he was maybe at the back of this meeting, and he'd look at me, he'd say, lad, you know nothing. (laughs) Compared to what I have been through over the last few decades, you have had a cakewalk. It's been an easy route for you. They tried to kill me. They've killed my friends. I've seen my family and friends and colleagues, you know, in in the colleagues in the sense of ministry in the gospel, uh, killed, crucified, and I'm still hanging in there waiting for Jesus to come, holding on to his words, holding on to those promises, believing that what he said is going to come to pass for my life and also for the church, watching and waiting, looking at the sky thinking, when is Jesus going to come back and sort this mess out? And so that's the state of mind that he's in. And he's writing these letters and this is the as far as we can probably tell from critical scholarship although there will be some people try to post the date of these further into the second century conservative scholarship puts them around 90 just before and just after for the book of revelation he's he's getting the word out there he's spotting problems he's seeing trends and he's speaking into that and then on this letter Oh, this is probably the first of what you would describe his letters, because I mentioned that the First John itself was more of a sermon than a letter. There was no kind of niceties, no "hey" in the First John. That is, there was no um, "hi guys," just writing, greetings, all that kind of stuff. And so and so said to you those greetings. That's not how First John worked. But in Second John, here there is an, ad- there is an address to a person, possibly to the church personified in a person, a lady. We're going to go into that now. And there's a kind of a sign-off at the end. So this is closest that we get out of his works with 3 John to a letter. So with that in mind, let's read this through and we'll work through some points. Okay, so verse 1 of 2 John says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I but all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, who will be with us uh, in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing to you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this love that we and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Very simple, straightforward. At this stage in John's life, he's an old man. You would think he's got all this complicated theology by this point. He's, uh, he's learned a bit along his journey and walk with Jesus, both in the flesh and by the Spirit. And yet he, he, he doesn't reduce the essentials of the Christian faith down to love. The essentials of the Christian faith is love. He's not saying I'm packaging it down into his essentials. It was essential. And that's what the key message that he wanted to get across is. But he says, verse 7, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist so watch out that you don't lose what you've worked for but that you may be rewarded fully anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of christ does not have god and i mentioned last week that there had been a sifting going on in the church and god does a sifting work in churches today He does a sifting work in our lives and we shouldn't just initially try to um Get away from anything that could be seen as a sifting type of situation because it exposes the quality of our heart. Test the quality of a church for John's situation. He recognized that actually the testing that they were going through and some people getting up and leaving, and there was a church split associated with that, it was a way that God could get those who were wolves away from the sheep. And in church, sometimes when our our pursuit of inclusivity and of unity, we're trying to keep people together all the time. And that's good because that's the shepherd's heart. We want to keep everybody together. But John's understanding was not everybody who looks like a sheep was a sheep. And just because they said the right things and they did the right things for a while, that didn't mean that they were necessarily authentic sheep. And there was a shaking that had gone on. And God had used that as an opportunity to get those out from them who would have been a problem for the health and the quality of the walk with the Lord of those who were left. And so siftings happen in churches and also sifting goes on in our own life. I mentioned Peter last week. Jesus said to Peter that the enemy, Satan, he wants to sift you as wheat. But that was so God could get something out of Peter's life that shouldn't have been there. Peter was bold and brave while Jesus was around. When Jesus was been taken away to be, to be tried and Peter was by himself, Peter got to see who he really was. And that was a sifting experience. And so in our lives and our experiences, there's a pastoral point in that, that God allows sifting experiences to test the quality of our lives and to test what's going on in churches. Verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not take him, or I would add her, into your house. Let's not assume all heretics are male. Men have their own, many problems, but we're not all the only heretics. Anyone who welcomes him or her shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Okay, so let's go into the text. So first of all, John describes himself there as the elder, and he addresses this letter, the short letter, 13 verses, to the lady chosen by God and to her children who he loved. So he was, he was fond of this person, Or of this church, because there are two ways that this could be understood. When the Scripture refers to Israel, often Israel is referred to in the feminine, like it's the the God's, when we talk about the church being the bride of Christ. So sometimes these, um, these, these writing styles can be describing a community when they seem to be referencing a person. But it's also perfectly legitimate in terms of when you translate this text to assume that they're person who is in charge of this congregation of people there is actually a, a woman. So that word lady there is another way that you might in, I, I had a friend of mine called Gwen who's gone to be with Jesus now and she was a missionary in Africa for many years. And when she'd get a phone call from people in Africa, uh, they would call her mama, like, hey mama, mama Gwen. Mother Gwen. It was an affectionate term, just recognizing her status as a kind of a, an elder in terms of her, her character and her longevity with that group of people. So, it was a, it was a, a, a term of, infect, of affection, and it was also a term of respect. And the word for lady there is a kind of way that you would say kind of mama in the language of the day. The equivalent male term would be where you to call someone master or lord, and often in the New Testament, Paul would use the term, you know, this is your, you know, your master or a lord or someone like that, and that was another affectionate term. It wasn't supposed to be a hierarchical thing. It was a, a term of respect, so there's quite a good, uh, uh, reason to believe that this was actually, rather than just speaking of a church, this was actually a woman who was in charge of this congregation. But on to the first kind of applicable point. Let's read this out again here, verses 4 to 5 and 8. John says, It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing to you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Then jumping down to verse 8, watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. And when I reflected on those verses there, the word that came to me was legacy. Legacy. What do you want your legacy to be? Now for John here, the focus of his legacy was people continuing to walk with Jesus when he'd gone? The thing that he valued the most was the quality of people's relationships with Jesus, quality being as they lovingly love one another and love Jesus. So his legacy was people. He wasn't looking to a time with great numbers, particularly for the church. He wasn't looking forward necessarily to a time when they could, they could be accepted in Roman society and move about unhindered. I mean, I'm sure if you could speak to John, he would have, wouldn't have minded that kind of thing. But he wanted to know that people were walking with Jesus. And in my own life, if I have anything that I want for my family, I want to know that when I go to heaven, my kids are going to continue to walk with Jesus. I'm not going to care what TV they have. What car they drive, where they live, how many bedrooms in their home, how many holidays a year they go on. I'm just going to care that they walk with Jesus. And so if that was most important to John. And as a father, I understand that my kids, my actual physical kids walking with Jesus is the most important thing to me. It comes down to our priority of effort and energy. Are we putting our greatest energy and effort into that thing which should be our priority and our legacy? Are we praying into those things? Are we leaning into them? Are we uh, talking to God saying, Lord, above everything else, I just... I come before you asking your grace and mercy that my family will continue to follow you all the days of their life, that when I'm long gone, no matter their economic status or their social status, that they will follow you. We need that legacy. But another thing the New Testament teaches us, that people following Jesus may well be the most important part of our legacy, but John describes it here that following Jesus, certainly superficially, wasn't enough. There needed to be something more about following Jesus than simply attending church, than being part and being part of the wider community. So let me just turn now to a couple of familiar passages in Corinthians. First of all, 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that is read out frequently at weddings about love. So we've moved from John now to Paul, Paul emphasizing the role and the significance of love being the quality foundation of what we do for God. He says, and now I'll show you the most excellent way. If I could speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I could have the gift of prophecy and can discern all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flame, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. So for John, the legacy of people following the Lord wasn't simply that they turned up to the meetings. But he would have had a heart to know that the people that he uh, would have had to outlast him would have loved in that kind of way. And one of the questions I have begun to ask myself in the last, let me say, year, maybe a little bit more, but I'll I'll just say year, is when I'm in a situation, talking to someone, whatever it is, whether I'm talking to someone in a supermarket, I'm talking to somebody at the... A car garage when I get in my car fixed where I'm talking to somebody in church, I ask myself the, qu- the question, what does love look like here? What does love look like here? When I'm talking to this person, or I'm about to say something or do something, I have to ask myself the question, not what should I do, what does love look like here? Because what I do and what I say should be in love. And many of the times we go through life on autopilot, we just do stuff. But I want to make sure that the quality of what I do is there because it's a loving thing to do, not simply a a generally courteous thing to do. Sometimes I judge my day on... Have I managed to not flip my lid and blow my top when the kids have been rude to me? I mean, that's a really low bar of expectation I have for myself. My kids need to not know that dad can keep his cool. They do need to know that. But above, they want to be able to see the love of Christ in me and experience in their own life. When I'm having a conversation with my wife, when I'm having a conversation with people in the church, I'm asking myself, what does love look like here? Because for both John and for Paul, it was so important that people not only follow Jesus, but what they did was saturated in the love of God so much so it came out in everything they did, whatever meeting they were in, whatever they would do, that it was in love. Because without that love, the actions that they took as believers in Jesus, using Paul's language here, was just a clashing cymbal or a clanging gong. It was a noise. It didn't have divine substance to it. And there's been much of my life as a Christian and a follower and probably as a leader too where I've said the right things and I've done the right things but it has lacked that vital ingredient of love because I've just gone through the emotions with it. And there's a challenge to me and I believe a challenge to the church. Can we go beyond just simply conforming our lifestyles to a Christian pattern? Can we look inside the very Bottom of our hearts, and say, Is the love of God so deeply in here that it's coming out in everything that I do, in every conversation that I have? Do people experience love, the love of God, when they experience me? Because without that, what we do has limited value. And what John says at the end in this passage, going back to John's thing here, he says, Watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, uh, so that you may be rewarded fully. There is a reward attached to living in a loving way. Not simply living in an obedient way, although obedience is an expression of love, but there must be a quality of love in that. Let me just turn to another passage in Corinthians now, in 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 10. In fact, I'm going to read from verse... Six of one Corinthians chapter three. We'll skip over a bit. Paul says, "I planted a seed, and Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded That's that word, word, There's that word "rewarded" again. Although again, it's on the words of on the lips of, of Paul, not of John. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. Uh, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And by the grace that God has given me, I've laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how they build. For no one can lay any other foundation than the one that was laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... His or her work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what they have built survives, they will receive a reward. If it is burned up, they will suffer loss, though themselves will be saved but only as one escaping through the flame. So what's Paul saying here? He's using the metaphor of building, and he's also using the metaphor of a farmer, sowing. Someone's sowing, things are growing, God is facilitating this whole process. He was just a cog in the process. He doesn't want to take glory for himself, but he also recognizes that what he does will eventually be judged and tested for its quality. And the reward associated with that will be dependent on the type of quality materials that he's used, this metaphor of building. What's interesting when he, g- he gives three, two groups of three substances, gold, silver, and costly stones, three of one type, wood, hay, or straw, three of another type. The gold, silver, and costly stones are non-combustible. The wood, hay, and straw are combustible you put fire on wood hay and straw poof, they go up you put fire on gold silver and costly stones they're refined and come through pure at the other side why does he say that god will have to test the quality of pe- people's work i think it's because of this paul recognized that some people looking at the work of some of the leaders would have assumed it was gold and silver and costly stones when actual reality it was just wood hay and straw And they would have looked at other people in the church and thought they just got wood, hay, and straw. And then when the day of judgment comes, they will find out it was gold, silver, and costly stones. By simply observing things, you would not know necessarily which type of material it was. So what is the secret ingredient to make sure that you were building with gold, silver, and costly stones rather than one of those three combustible materials? Well, if we read down now into chapter 4, verse 5 of that 1 Corinthians, same passage, read down your page. Paul says, "'Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. You've got to wait until the Lord comes.'" He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness, and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. And at that time, each will receive their reward from God. So he's saying that what is done is only only the quality of the motive that brought it about. If the motive wasn't right, then the things that you did are not right too. If your motive is right, then the things of what you do are also right. So he's saying it's possible to see, be seen to do the right thing, but your heart's in the wrong place, and therefore the right thing is therefore wrong. And that tells me then in order for me to get to that point, I can't simply look at what I do to know whether what I'm doing stands up to the test of God. I have to be prepared to look deeper. And the only way I can do that is to allow the work of the Holy Spirit to expose my heart for what it is. Which is going back to last week and talking about the sifting process. When God sifts us or allows us to go through a testing and trial type experience then the motive of our heart gets exposed. Say, for example, you're in church leadership and suddenly the salary disappears. Well, why did you do it? Did you do it because you love Jesus or because you got a salary for it? Some people, they want to get involved in church when they, they get a, a title that goes along with it. Can I be your director of evangelism? Well, why do you want to be the... Just evangelize people. What do you need a title for? Where people begin to talk to you in that way, it kind of a, it's a triggering thing. you're thinking, well, wh- why? What's there not revealed in your own heart to yourself that makes you want to get a publicly recognized title to do what you should be doing anyway, because you love Jesus? And so Paul recognizes it's possible to be deluded about the quality of your own work. You can be busy and active and almost tenacious for the work of the local church, and your heart be serving your own agenda rather than Jesus. And when there isn't a love for God and for one another at the core of your motivation, then what you do for God rewards you nothing. Now, that doesn't mean it's ineffective, If I do something for Alan, for example, that is incredibly sacrificial for me, but serves my own agenda, Alan benefits, but I'm not rewarded. If I do something, um, I really put myself out there and do something to serve somebody else in my church, and I do it for me, not for them, for how I look and might appear in their eyes for doing it, they will benefit from that, but I won't be rewarded. And what John is saying is echoing what Paul had said to the Corinthians earlier, which would have been well known to the apostles, that there were lots of people out there calling themselves Christians, looking like they were sheep, going about what they said was the business of the gospel, getting on with church stuff. But at the very core of their heart, there was an agenda for self and not for Jesus. Therefore, everything they did was wood, hay, and straw, not gold, silver, and costly stones. So there must be something in us that takes the challenge seriously to figure out what it is that's driving your life and my life. Is it the love of God that is compelling me to do what I do? Now I'm sure all of us go through seasons in our lives when we feel like it's a little bit kind of robotic. We're just getting through. I'm in church today because I've dragged myself here, not because I woke up this morning just bursting with love for Jesus. I don't think that's the kind of thing that Paul and Peter were challenging. They were challenging a hidden part of people's heart and motives, which was ultimately serving their own comfort and agenda and profile rather than serving the purposes of Jesus. And so those filtering things are a way that God can expose that. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when John says that, we need to make sure that we may protect and do not lose what we've worked for so we are rewarded fully. Okay, the next verse. This is an interesting one here. I've used this in a study before. I can't remember what the topic was, but I have used it. I remember that. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. I mentioned uh, last week there were three tests that Paul had for authentic faith. There was a moral test, whether people were living in a moral way. That was uh, an indicator of whether this person was or was not a genuine follower of Jesus. If there was a persistent and intentional um, intent to sin over a period of time, that was a red flag. I use the analogy of the herbivore dinosaur being born in a family of carnivores. There's something of a nature difference in Christians that should be expected. So, there was a moral test. There was also a teaching test. What were they teaching? What were they saying? What were they talking about? And there was also a fellowship test. Were they staying with the church or were they going off and doing their own thing? So there was a moral test, there was a teaching test, and there was a fellowship test. But while many of us may not get into the kind of heretical extremes that John's opponents here had got to I'd, I've never gone into Gnosticism I think it would be a rabbit hole that would only confuse more than edify but they had gone down a quite extreme teaching which had sent them way off track some of these opponents of John but there is a lesson here for a lot of us even when we're watching certain teachers and preachers on the internet does the Bible back up what they're saying and was does what they're saying seem nice to my ears I have read so many books where I've gone and got halfway through and thought, what on earth have I spent my money on this for? This is just this guy's ideas, and he's tried to find a few scriptures to back up his position. He started with his position, then he went to the scripture to find something that supported it. He didn't start with the scripture and then bring his own ideas out of that. And the challenge is for all of us to not go beyond what has been written and make sure that we're alert that there can be people out there who will offer nice-sounding stories about what they think of God or the church or Jesus, and it has no real basis of Scripture. Let me turn to something else in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 15, the apostles had to do this themselves. Acts chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. The question was, what do we do about all these uncircumcised, well, not all of these, some uncircumcised Gentiles coming and following God without that procedure happening to them? So it says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that for some time God had made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. There was a a test of experience. Could they witness the work of the Holy Spirit? He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of disciples a yoke that neither your or our fathers were able to bear? Now, jumping down to verse 15, he says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. As it is written. He goes on to quote the book of Amos, uh, a, a prophet who had foreseen a time when the Gentiles would be brought into the household of God, into followers Of God. Now, interestingly, Amos doesn't say that there would be a, a getting rid of circumcision, but they did make sure that what they had read and known that God had revealed already was in agreement with what they were seeing and witnessing with their eyes. And when you and I read the Bible, or you watch or listen to somebody else who is telling you their version of what the Bible says, We need to know, is this source for what they're saying, what they feel the text is saying, or what the text actually was intended to say? When you're reading the Bible, you have to make a decision. When something leaps off the page at you, or it it seems to inspire you, or impress something upon you, God can quicken you in a moment through the text in a way that the text never anticipated. But if, if you're trying to get something... That has a larger application, certainly for preaching and teaching, you need to make sure that you're not simply giving your inspirations to the church as being a, a kind of a, a theological position about God. It has to agree with what the text was intended to say in the first place. Even the apostles themselves, they brought themselves into line with Scripture. When prophetic words were given in the church, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, You know, two or three prophets should prophesy, but then the others should test what they've said to make sure it's true. He'd built an accountability system to work alongside the prophetic system. Because he recognized that some people could get so carried away in what they felt was the Holy Spirit that they were espousing nonsense. Nonsense. And in a charismatic church, it is crucially important that we don't just assume that somebody who gets up or says something they feel is really what God is saying right now is necessarily what God is saying right now. Because if it doesn't align itself with what the Scriptures were designed to say, well then they're just saying what they feel. And what we feel isn't necessarily what God wants to say. It's just what we feel God might be saying. So, we have to be careful not to go beyond what is said. Now, in Scripture, sometimes there is no neat Scripture for what we're trying to decide is God saying about an issue. So, for example, we might feel that God uh, is telling us X, Y, and Z about something, and we're looking through the Scriptures and we can't say, I can't see a similar situation that, that, that neatly fits with this. A guy I've mentioned before a number of times, N.T. Wright, he has this illustration which I think is helpful. He said, if you were going to watch a play, and there were five acts in that play, acts being five parts, five major scenes in that play, you would watch Act 1 and Act 2 and Act 3 and Act 4, and you would see the development of the characters, you would see their nature, their, their, their way of speaking, their temperament, how they interacted with one another. And you would get a sense that as the plot is developing and the actors are working that plot through, how the story is going. And you wouldn't expect to see in Act 5 something wholly different to what you saw in Act 1, 2, 3 and 4. Now, Act 5 is new. You haven't seen it in Act 1, 2, or 3, or 4 because the plot line is developing. But it would not be inconsistent with the first four acts that you watched beforehand. And what he was saying is, through through that analogy, through that illustration, in the church we're moving into the new all the time. So tomorrow, what would it be? The 28th of June? Is that right? Something of June. 29th. There was never been a 29th of June 2023 before. But God won't be with you in a way tomorrow wholly different to how he was in all the other days leading up to that. Because he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. So as the church moves forward and as worship styles develop and as preaching series come online, and we watch this, and we pick up this latest book, we shouldn't expect to see something wholly different in the nature and the character of the main person, God, than we would expect in the first four acts. And so there needs to be a consistency. And one of the biggest, I'm going to sound like a bit of a soapbox moment, but one of the biggest challenges to the church today, I think, is biblical illiteracy people don't really know what the Bible says. How can you test the quality of what people are telling you if you've never read the thing properly for yourself? You just take their word for it. I remember one, um, uh, it was a Baptist uh, scholar over in America. He said, he said, it's amazing. He says, the Bible sheds great light on the truth of the commentaries. And what he was basically saying is that sometimes commentaries are just building on a host of tradition, but actually, if you read the Bible properly, you'll get to find out whether those commentaries are really true or not. Just don't assume that it's true. Look at the Bible for yourself. And within many churches, we just become an echo chamber for our own thoughts. And we have to anchor it in the word of God. So we have to be able to test these things. People, what we need to watch out that people are not going. Ahead of what has been said. Okay, the final main point here. Another word of caution here from John. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that's the one that he's been sharing with them about Jesus, don't take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. That's interesting, isn't it? You're guilty by association and cooperation. Now, there's this other side to this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus talks about what's called a prophet's reward. Anyone who receives a, prophet's will, pre- receives a prophet will also receive a prophet's reward. Now, if you read around that, no one knows exactly what that means. But the general idea is that the blessing and favor that was On the prophet that you hosted some of that kind of rubs off on you and in Jewish households it was traditional for them to have a room on the top of their house in case a visiting prophet would come through and the root of that tradition comes from when Elisha stayed with the Shunammite woman and ministered around her her home they built a, a room for him on the house on the top of the house they put walls up there somewhere for him to stay and after that, they thought, well, this is a good idea. If we want the blessings of having people like Elisha in your house, and who wouldn't want the blessings of having someone like Elisha in your house, you have to be prepared for that. You have to have a, a space for them to go, somewhere for them to stay. And then you receive the benefit of their presence. So a lot of Jewish households would have a room built on the top of the house in case of itinerant prophets coming through. It'd often work as a guest room. I mean, why wouldn't you want to use it as a, as a, a place for the mother-in-law to come and stay as well? But in in principle, it was supposed to be for a profit. So you could benefit from that profit coming to your house and showing them hospitality. But on the flip side of this, John's saying that don't have a false prophet in your house. Because in the same way having a true prophet in your house will bring you a benefit, God will hold you to account for entertaining those who are false prophets. So there is a discernment that's needed. There are boundaries that need to be set i remember some years ago i was in canada in in the early part of 2000 actually. And I went to stay up on this this campsite retreat place, Christian retreat place with a friend of mine called Marcus. And Marcus was a doctor, nice guy, loves the Lord. He was a a kind of a real kind of like a big brother figure in my life for a number of years. And I received a lot of uh, uh, positive input from him. And one thing I remember when we stayed up at this campsite was how much wildlife is just part of being in the woodlands of Canada. Some of it good, I'd watched a moose come past the window on several occasions and go and swim in a lake. But every morning, you would open the front door and there, would be a, there was a snake at the front door. And you'd open the door and it would go into the house. And you know what I never did? I never thought, oh, just let it stay there. Just let it make its own bed somewhere in the corner. No! If a snake comes into your house, you get the snake out. You don't pet the snake. You don't set it a plate at dinner time and say, come and sit at the table with the snake. Because it's poisonous, probably. Well, I never got bitten by it, but I assume it's, it's not the thing you want to get bitten by. And... In a similar way, John's saying you need to have certain boundaries in your life that you don't simply just tolerate people who espouse nonsense. Now, you might not have an overtly false prophet or somebody who was a snake-like person trying to wheedle their way into your life, but sometimes I think people are too long accommodating of toxic personalities in their life People whose very presence grinds you down, winds you up, and saps the living daylights out of you. And you're thinking, oh, I've just got to be so loving towards them. Yes, you do have to be loving towards them. But what John, who is this apostle of love, who really stresses the essential nature of lovingness, that's not a word, being loving, he says, the best way to love a wolf It's not to treat them as a sheep. The best way to love a snake is not let it come into your house. The best way to love a false prophet is not to prepare a room for them to come in and stay. You need to be able to set a boundary with them. And so as Christians, we need boundaries. We need markers. We need space in our world where we say certain people cannot come beyond this point. When When you have a for example, you have a, a salesman come to your house, and they could, they could well be a serpent. Who knows? I've met a lot of salesmen that seem to have no scruples. You don't say, oh, come on, we'll just have this conversation up in the bedroom. You don't, you don't, you don't say that. You say, well, you come into the living room, and you have a, a space which is designated that that is a kind of a, a, a neutral point. You can come across the threshold of my house, and you can be there, but you can't come any further into my house than that. I'm going to quarantine what you say there. I'm going to figure out whether what you're saying is is, is good or bad. We have boundaries. Even if we let people into our lives, let people into our home, we have limits, or we should have limits on uh, on how much exposure and contact they can have with us, and as Christians, we need to set strict boundaries with people in our lives who are not serving the agenda of God, and their very presence is undermining the work of God in us. So Paul is wanting to, uh, sorry, John is wanting to make sure that we set proper boundaries. I love this illustration by Dr. Henry Cloud he said boundaries are a lot like fence fences around your house and it says it lets people know how far that they can how far that they can go he said but it's not just about people it's about also recognizing how far the things that those people produce can encroach upon your world as well and he said in his illustration that he had this rather large backyard, but some of his neighbors allowed their trees to grow over his fence, and some of the, the stuff from the trees, the leaves and the, and the fruit, would drop in his yard. He didn't just think, oh, well, you know what, I'm going to spend the next 20 years while I'm living in this property, sweeping up the leaves and the fruit from my neighbor's trees. That would be ludicrous. What a waste of energy. Emotional energy and physical energy. He had to say to his neighbors, can you trim your trees back so they don't drop junk on my yard? And we have to be prepared sometimes to say, I don't want your junk in my yard. I don't want your unkept trees and bushes leaving their deposit in space that I've designated as mine. You take care of your mess. Don't let it just dump on me. So what I'm trying to say is that our love for people does have boundaries. It does have a no attached to it. We can look at people and say, I love you, but I don't tolerate this, 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 and this. And unless John had done that, he would have let people come in and influence the church who were toxic for the church. Final point. This is a shorter one. He says, I have much to write to you but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete." John knew the power of being present, physically present. I don't know how John would have got on through lockdown, but I would imagine he would have been excited to stop Zooming everybody and get into a space where he could talk and drink a cup of coffee with people. He knew the power of proximity. And in church in these days, we have seen a trend of people who find it easier to connect with church online than in person. Now, I get that sometimes because of ill health or through a season of, you know, problems or inconveniences on their own life, it is it feels easier for a season to connect with the church remotely. But all of us should have something within us to be like John to think, well, having contact with you is good, but I'd rather have contact with you being present with you than remote with you. His letters were really important. His letters were communicating truth to people and helping them to educate themselves about who Jesus was and how to walk away in a way that was rewarding and had a legacy and was honoring to God and, you know, made sure that they spotted the wolves from the sheep. It was important stuff. But John was saying it doesn't replace the benefit that we get from actually just being side-by-side side or face-to-face face and being in one another's presence. And in church today, we should, we should always... Shoulds and oughts, and it sounds like very uh, a kind of dictatorial language. I have to be careful how I present this. But all of us should, I hope, recognize the need for close fellowship and proximity the Sunday gatherings are not a nice optional extra. They're part and parcel of living a vibrant Christian life. John was sending letters and receiving letters and finding stuff out and instructing this and going there, but he knew the power of personal presence, and we should too. Because we're built up when we're in one another's company in a way that cannot simply be achieved remotely. There is a power and a significance to being together, which we should recognize as a sacred thing. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, in our mind, and we think about Adam and Eve going about their business, even before the fall, before the went on, God who knew all, who saw all, still chose to come and walk with Adam and Eve in the call of the day. He chose to have proximity with them, presence with them, time with them. He didn't say, I'll just run this from in heaven, you get on with the earth bit, and we'll talk across the ether. God chose to bring his presence into the garden. He didn't need that for his own sake to find out what was going on, to get the latest gossip from Adam or Eve. He did it because proximity is part of God's design. It's part of God's intention that we spend time in one another's company. Okay, so that's enough for two John, I think. We're going to finish next week, of course, on three John, where there is no, it's less vague about who this is to. It's to, to a, a guy called Gaius. So John names um, the recipient of that letter. And there's some things which they have, which is in common with 2 John, but there's some other things too. So we'll leave it there. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchority.com.